Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Essay Voices from the Field. Each week we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I'm your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I am happy to have you here. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I'm your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I'm so happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Today, I'm really excited to have two guests. Woo, a double thrill. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Representing, still on the East Coast, but representing two different schools, we have Miss Leticia Yarbrough, and then I have Mr. Ricky Ergo. Let's start with Ms. Leticia. Why don't you tell us about yourself and the institution that you represent? Give us a little background. Um, well, my name is Leticia Yarbrough. I am a coordinator for residential education at the University of Sud- of California, Santa Cruz. Um, I work in the housing department. I'm a, this is a research one institution, 19,000 students. Our population of diversity on this campus is we are a Hispanically servant institution. So we have a good group of students coming from all walks of life. Um, and we have a very, Im- very improved international program here as well. All right. Sounds like you're very close. It's in Santa Cruz. I didn't realize you were in Santa Cruz. I just saw the Rachel Carson College thinking it was an East Coast college, but I forgot at UC Santa Cruz, you guys have different names for different schools, correct? Yeah, we work in a college model. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. So I missed that. My bad. So yes, you're at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, How long have you been involved in NASPA? So I've um, been a part of NASPA for three years now, two years for graduate and one year professional. So is this your first professional position? Yes, this is my first professional position out of grad school. Great. Okay, Ricky, let's hear from you. Tell us your story and tell us a little bit about UM Ann Arbor. Yeah, sure. So my name is Ricky Ergo. I use pronouns he, him, and his. Um, currently work at the University of Michigan as a hall director. Been here since summer of 2018. And a little bit about U of M. So we're a large research one institution. We enroll about 45,000 students, um, most of which, so it's a PWI. Most of the students that we serve here are white students. And then specifically my time in NASPA, spent the two years of grad working with NASPA in different ways um, and have been a member since. Um, and just had a student actually um, get accepted to the Nuff Fellowship. So I'll be working with NASPA this year in that capacity as well. Great. Oh yes. One of the best, one of the one of the best ways to get connected is to be enough. Oh yeah. And we're we're excited. Oh, are you guys both graduates of Nuff? I am not, but I really wanted him to have an opportunity to be able to have an introduction to the field and be supported. So we talked about it. He applied for it and we're taking it on this year. So I'm really I'm excited. Yeah. Great. No, that's that's exciting. Okay, so today's topic is professionalism or socialized white supremacy. Now that is a mouthful for real. So y'all gonna have to break this down for me because um, I, you know, we can. Ooh, that's a, in today's day and age too. We can we can talk about this all day, but we only have so much time. So who wants to go first to break this down? I can go first. All right, let's hear from Ricky. Ricky, break that down for me. <laughs> Yeah. So originally, uh, Leticia and I were having conversations about, 
different ways that professionalism kind of like shows up in our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we were writing the article that's on the website now, we talked about like how properness, right? This like idea of properness um, shows up in communities and outside of communities, how we learn or socialize to understand professionalism and what that means and how it shows up in the field. Um, and so we, we really started digging into like the ways that we've noticed it in grad school and in our professional positions and the ways that it shows up and like what purpose it serves, um, what are some like consequences or other like pieces that come with that, and then how we're navigating it as new professionals in the field. And maybe some things that, you know, we've come to learn over time and then like some experiences that we have from grad that inform the, the way that we do our practice. Okay. I think also and adding to that is just thinking about how the system was not made for people of color. And continuously, we are going through these processes or the systems in which we do things. Um, They're still upholding this this white face, this white supremacy act. Um, And we want to make sure that we can decolonize that. We can break that down. We can talk about it. We can have these conversations to say, okay, what we've done in the past, yes, it could be tradition. It could be our history and different things like that. But who are we serving today? And how are we giving back to our student population today? And it's interesting because um, you talk about code switching. And as an African-American female, I have to do that all day, every day. You know, let me try that. I have done that all day, every day for 53 years, period. It's just how you were taught how to do that in order to be accepted in, quote, the norm. Correct. Uh, Talk a little bit about that and how, how sad is that, you know, that we have to, and our code switching has to be just right for the, you know, with the audience that's right there. I mean, it's, it's, it's so much quote unquote drama, but it's like second nature. At least I know, I know it is to me, second nature. Let's talk a little bit about that piece of it. I think it's, it's complete second nature. I think it's definitely something that you learn early on. Like as a child, my mother told me growing up, you should be able to turn it on and turn it off. Um, it, it should be, you should know your surroundings, the places that, um, you're at and when you can, you know, turn it on and turn it off being in spaces that is learning cold switching is basically a way to cross the cultural barriers, um, understanding how people perceive certain things, whether I say it properly or whether I'm saying that something with my family at home, it may be the same context of what we're talking about, but said totally different to help people understand where I'm coming from. Ricky, did you want to add something to that? Yeah. Um, so like speaking from my own experience, um, like being a first generation student and being a student from like a poor background, I think, you know, the tool of code switching shows up differently when you look at like different marginalized communities. So I think about like how I navigated higher education as a student and having like the background that I have and folks that I was in community with at home, it just looked a lot different. And I knew, at least for me, like in my own perspective and experience, I had to like think about like people not understanding what I was saying or like it it essentially smacked me in the face. Right. When I was like, Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to think about it in this way or like have to, you know, think about it as a means of like survival or navigation for people to take me serious or understand like where I'm coming from. 
Um, and so then I think about people whose lived experiences um, that I, I don't share have had to navigate that and day in and day out. And I have like the privilege to be able to step away from it and exist. Right. Cause that's like a piece of privilege is being able to like remove yourself from it. And then I have to think tenfold about what my colleagues experience. And that's something I'll never have to navigate. That piece of survival right there, that, that idea is that's how people of color have to survive in this world is how we eat. You're absolutely right. And then Ricky, when you talk about the first generation piece, People treat you differently if you if you don't like you said if you don't or aren't able to you know share the ex- experiences and then you feel this at least I know I feel like this ignorance around people and it's just like okay how can I I need to make sure you know what how did you work that through <laughs> yeah it's funny you ask so I think about that with like class passing and then like learning the language so really I, I when I think about it I reflect about it it's really the place of my mentors that helped me figure out those things because I, I don't think that I would be here truthfully in this space doing this type of work had I not met the people that I did along the way. There's no way. So professionalism, how does it show up? Yeah, let's talk about it. We kind of like broke it down in, in different ways. So like looking at the first thing we, we chatted about was like the part or like the role that you have at the institution. So I work in a residence hall when moving comes, right? I'm wearing like my housing polo and my name tag and my slacks and signaling to the folks who are parents, families, whoever is like helping students move in. Like that's the professional staff member. And so I can see that it, it serves a role in that capacity. And at the same time, I'm holding like multiple truths, right? That yes, this is signaling to folks that this is a professional staff member and they have a role. And at the same time, my dress and hair and like covering up my tattoos shouldn't dictate that I'm a professional in the role, Mm -hmm. but it's still something that we have to navigate. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when it comes to professionalism, just coming into this role and my experience was like this idea of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had to work twice as hard to get half as far than my white peers. I remember I did a presentation last year at ACPA and some uh, we surveyed 109 folks and kind of got some ideas of professionalism and different things like that. And someone said being a person of color and identifying whether I'm valued for my qualifications or my value for being a person of color. Hmm. That sat with me like mm-hmm. that's something that carried me. And I was like, because that's how that's how I felt coming into the role that I had to come early, leave late. I was put here to do the work to advocate for our students of color, but not given the resource to do that. So then you have to do the extra work, the legwork to, in order to advocate for our students. And that has been my experience. I agree whole, um, wholeheartedly. Um, in my former role, I helped with move in in the sense of being there. I wasn't, I wasn't picking up any boxes because I didn't want to break a nail. However, <laughs> <laughs> but um, as the main staff person, like you, Ricky, I wear the polo. I have the jeans on. I've got pom poms on my side pocket to show. <laughs> yes, I mean, first of all, I'm going to show because I used to work at the University of Southern California. <laughs> Enough said. And so. <laughs> You know, it was just, I I was just trojaned out, you know. However, that name tag set me apart. 
But, but in the same token, yes, I was a staff person, but then it just, because of that dress, it made it more friendly because, Mm -hmm. because I was in the polo Mm -hmm. that said university, you know, USC or whatever. And Mm -hmm. that authority look yet loving when a mom like figures out she's going to leave her son and she's crying in the other room and I've got to consult her. You know, I'm sure you guys have seen that working in, in residential life. So you know, there's that. But then when it's time for the orientation or do a presentation, I'm in a suit or I'm in a dress. I mean, you know, and but but they remember there's that human side. And I think that unfortunately is what's missing in a lot of our um, uh, administrators, our, our key like upper level. And I mean, presidents, like presidents, vice president, dean. It's like for some reason, the professionalism clicks in so hard that the human piece doesn't come out. And then the students feel like, you know, you're not approachable. Um, and so I know as a person of color, we've got to code switch so much that we have to make sure that our face is right, uh, that we're not giving somebody a crazy look. I mean, it's just, it's so much just to exist. So I can totally understand what you were talking about, Leticia. And definitely as a first generation African-American woman, first gen, you know, the triple threat, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were talking, um, one of the points that you brought up was attrition of people of color. Um, you wanted yeah. to speak on that a little bit. Yeah. So I think that idea where we come in with this imposter syndrome, that idea that we come in working day in and day out, long hours, making sure that we're doing our work, advocating for uh, students, because we don't just hold our identities and ourselves. I'm not just Leticia Yarbrough when I come to this role. I'm every other Black woman that comes to this role. Right. Um, And I represent that whether I want to or not. And being that we're here to do the work and advocate it and we're the face of things, that leads to a lot of burnout. We're doing the hard work. We're answering the questions that our white counterparts hasn't, haven't educated themselves well enough to answer. Um, we are sitting in meetings challenging folks that this does not serve our students' needs. Why are we doing this? How, how did we get here? And why is it so hard for us to sit down and just think about what are we doing? What is our purpose? And building everything around that. So, um, Ricky, wh- yeah. what risk does this pose for folks to challenge the status quo? Yeah, so we've been having lots of conversations about this. When I think about, you know, people have to hold multiple things at the same time, right? Like when we step into roles, we're not just like our individual selves, right? You know, people are supporting families, what, you know, and whatever structure that looks like, right? That could be as a first generation student supporting my folks back home or as, you know, someone who might, you know, be married or have a family or might have children and whatever that might look like, right? There's a lot of risk for people to put themselves out there. And so a conversation we've been having uh, recently, at least here in, in other spaces, is that, you know, people are putting themselves at risk to do the work. And then we have to think about like what hill you're really willing to die on. And I think about my socialization in grad school, right? And we think about the field, it's like gung-ho, you step into an entry-level position, you want to change the world. And then, you know, you get smacked in the face with whatever barriers there might be. And so, you know, people, you know, are putting themselves at risk when they bring these things up. You really have to think about like, where, where are my values? 
and what's something I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be uh, less persistent about. Um, but you, you can't do that with every battle. Like you won't survive in the field. And so for me personally, I've really had to think about um, what that might look like as I like navigate the, the landscape of higher ed, but I'm also a white male, right? And so I have to think about my colleagues who don't have the same amount of capital um, that I do, even when I step in the spaces without people knowing my background, right? Like the visual cues of being white man, right? Masculine presenting, mm-hmm. people hear me and see me differently. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm thinking for myself, I'm like, wow, if I step into a space and try to, you know, navigate things in a specific way, like what does that look like for my colleagues? And I have to take time to think about that. Um, so I think the risk individually looks a lot different depending on all the circumstances, but the risk is present nevertheless. I think when Ricky talked about risk, I think about the cost that is associated with advocacy. Like it's almost like you have to pay, like you're given a certain amount of money and every time you're advocating for uh, issue a group of students, you have to take out some of that money to put on the table. And when you're in a space and you're advocating for folks, you have to figure out, okay, what is the the biggest issue? What are we going to talk about today? And because I can't take on all these little battles. So what are we going to advocate for today? What hill am I going to die on? Right? Um, what hill am I willing to die on to make sure that my students are heard, my students are fed? Being, being here in California when we're dealing with, you know, food insecurities and housing insecurities, like what am I willing to battle with today? And after battling so long, sometimes people, especially for me in my experience, sometimes people stop to listen. They, they stop listening. And I notice you guys are talking more about how you're going to help your students. And, and trust me, I, I totally understand that. How does it feel for you when you're stepping into a staff meeting? For example, when I became a director for the first time in, in 1999, I'd step into the room and I'm looking around and I can count the people of color. And, and I'm not one to be really intimidated, but I sat there and I thought, oh my God, am I in the right space? Can I do this? So what, why do we have that? You think you can't do it or you or that you're not ready for this, even though you're qualified, everything matches up, but you're sitting in this space and you just feel like either you're not ready or whatever that looks like. And maybe help me put some words to this. I can't, for whatever reason, I can't put the words that I'm trying to say, but I know I felt uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and not one to feel uncomfortable. I think it starts even in graduate school. Mm-hmm. When you learn about the history of higher education, you understand that this system was not made for you. It was not made for me. Holding these roles was was not what higher education was built to do. So when I get into a meeting and I'm the only person of color and I'm like I'm looking around the room and I'm like, okay, so when there's an issue that comes up related to anti-Blackness or just different issues that have came up in different meetings, I'm waiting to see if my colleagues will speak up. So I don't have to do it all the time because it can be draining. And I think that has been my experience it is, I hear you, like it, it definitely is, feels uncomfortable at times. But I know that I was here to do the work and I enjoy what I do. 
You know, I, I enjoy every moment of it, whether I have to sit into spaces and battle my colleagues to make sure that we are moving forward for the, the benefit of the bigger picture. And I think you two are speaking to like the imposter syndrome pieces that like Leticia mentioned. I would even say it would start before graduate school, right? Like your experiences with the education system, bar none, probably set you up for that. And you just continue to see that pattern over time. Right. And then we think about like how many people are in higher education. Right. And if you grew up in a community that supported having folks like you in a community and then you move to a space like Michigan, right, super large PWI, it's probably very daunting. And I can imagine as a staff member, when you're sitting in a space where most of the folks that you work with in a space don't look like you that you'll be continued to be reminded of those things. Absolutely. And have you ever felt, Ricky, in a space where you didn't feel like you belong? Um, I mean, I, I would think about like my experiences and like graduate education a lot. Like I was, I was very timid and that's not who I am because I was like, there's a lot of folks here and right. And I had this like thought about what like education and intellect was and all these other things and thought like I would take time after class and like write down the notes that my professor talked about. And I was like, I need to go Google this word because other people in the space know what he's talking about. And I have no clue. Mm. And I felt like I was an imposter in many of my classes. I was like, I, is this space really meant for me? Like, am I supposed to be here? And I was like, and when you go home, right, nobody knows what I'm talking about. I'm like, yeah, we, we learned this thing in class or like this concept. And they're like, I've never been to a college, so I don't know how to relate to you about that. Interesting. Well, this has been truly a, wow. It, I mean, it brings so many, like you said, the imposter syndrome, the whole piece of just, you know, we talk about our students having a sense of belonging, but we don't talk about staff and faculty sense of belonging. We mm. are there 24 seven for our students. We're giving them everything that we need to give them. Like you said, come in early, stay late, do what you got to do. You know, that whole professionalism goes to wear braids, wear your hair straight, Shave your beard because having hair in the business world, you can't, honey, you can't rock that beard. I mean, you, it, it's cute, you know, and I'm looking at you because, you, you know, I said, it's cute. You've got the whole Santa Claus thing going. But if you were to work by IBM, they'd be like, uh, no, not today. Right. So it's like, you know, the culture of the different spaces that we occupy. But so I would say that education is the most lenient because it, it allows us to be ourselves, even though I still have to deal with the whole imposter syndrome. It's like, like you said, it's like knowing your audience, knowing your community, making sure that you're fun and human, but you're still, you know, the hall director for this, this, this building. You're still that person that's in charge and I'm human. I can smile. I can sit down with you. I can chew the fat with you, that type of thing. So yes, professionalism is definitely, <laughs> um, socialized white supremacy. So, um, but I thank both of you for coming. I know our time is always, we get, I get wrapped up in it and I, and I tend to go over and I can't do that this time, but I, I really appreciate your thoughts and your honesty in your, um, separate experiences as we kind of go through. And as you, as new, newer professionals go through, uh, student affairs. And as you rise up to different things, you know, remembering how you felt in those spaces and what you can do to make students fe not feel that way. And that's, that's mm -hmm. what, that's what we're all about. That's what NASPA is all about. And, and I tell you, res residential life is one of the best ways to, to, uh, work through student affairs and become a director, dean, VP. A lot of the folks who have been deans, VPs, and presidents started as hall directors in grad school. 
So Mm -hmm. you guys do a lot. Thank you for your work um, that you do and continue to think about how you would feel in those spaces when those students come to you, which I'm sure you do. So yes, I truly appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you found value in what you heard, please share the podcast with other student affairs practitioners. We have new podcasts that go on live online every Thursday. I look forward to having you join us next time as we share practical tips to aid you in your own student affairs journey. Look for us on Thursdays as we release a new podcast each Thursday. And if you're interested in being a part of the podcast series, please go on the NASPA website and click the button that will allow you to contact us with your topic and we will surely get you involved. And everyone have a great day or evening. Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time.